Well, as we uh, come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer asking for his assistance. Father, indeed, we come to you recognizing you are the sovereign God over all. We thank you for the privilege we have to open your word. And we ask that you would please, Lord, cause our minds to be alert, cause us to have humble hearts that we might receive your truth and that it might transform us according to your will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the song that we sang just a few moments ago, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, has some elements in it that are often somewhat foreign to the Christmas context. And that is particularly mentioning Satan's power and might and Jesus' rescuing of people from Satan's power. We don't often think about Satan around Christmas time. And in fact, as I've People have asked me, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I say, well, I'm in the middle of Advent series, and I'm preaching on Satan. And <clears throat> you go, wait a minute, what? Satan and Christmas? How does that go together? But I believe that there is a right way to look at Christ at Christmas time and yet not ignore Satan. And the reason we don't want to ignore Satan is because he is the one who was defeated by Christ in his work here at Christmas time. Think of it this way. It's like if you were to reflect upon World War II and you only focus on the Allies, but you never mention or ignore Nazi Germany. Or maybe you reflect upon the Civil War and you only reflect upon the Union Army of the North, but you completely ignore the Confederate Army of the South. You cannot talk about a battle and only talk about the winning side. You need to understand the conflict is at stake. And so just as uh, those victories are sweeter understanding the enemy that was defeated, so the victory of Christ through the incarnation over Satan is sweeter when we know who it was that was defeated. Our theme this year for Advent has been tidings of comfort and joy. And we'll continue that today. And the question is, why is the message of Christmas the one that brings true comfort and joy here in 2021, some of which we've looked at already in the prior weeks. But today, my contention is that we have comfort and joy because Jesus came to defeat our greatest enemy, the devil. The message of Christmas is that Jesus, the baby born in the manger, is the Son of God who left the glory of heaven to take on human flesh so that he could save us, so that he could die upon the cross, be our propitiation, he came to earth on a rescue mission. And last week we looked at that. But today we're going to see that one of the reasons Jesus came to earth was to defeat the great adversary of God. Satan doesn't get a whole lot of headlines these days. If you rewound the clock to the Middle Ages, then you would hear Satan and demons come up quite a bit actually. Western civilization at the time believed in the existence of the devil and his demons. This was largely because of the teaching of the church at that time. And there was lots of superstition that surrounded this belief of demons. There was, you could, you could say they kind of believed there was a demon behind every rock, or under every rock and behind every tree. They, they realized that there were demons all over the place and it resulted in a, in a degree of superstition. But even that superstition aside, they believed that there were spiritual beings in this world because of what the Bible taught. As Luther put it, this world is with devils filled. Today, we moderns laugh at those silly people who believe that there were demons under every rock and behind every tree because we've surpassed beyond that time when superstitions we recognize for the silliness that they are. You see, Western society, since the Enlightenment, has sought to adopt a way of looking at the world that is based upon rationality, upon the five senses. And so, if it cannot be determined by the senses, it isn't real. And in some ways, there's been some, some things that have developed from the Enlightenment that we would celebrate. But in particular, it's been detrimental to faith and to the Bible, and this is because the Enlightenment placed man's mind in his faculty of reason as the ultimate arbiter of truth. 
So man's reason was enthroned, and everything came underneath that, including God, the Bible, and faith. And so much of the Bible was rejected because it contains miracles and supernatural events. And so you could take, for example, Thomas Jefferson, who famously took scissors to his Bible and cut out all the supernatural elements so that he just had a collection of moral teachings. This is what the Enlightenment did to Christianity. And so now, many generations past the, this philosophical movement, the average person in the West has no place for supernatural beings or occurrences. Now, where a man of the Middle Ages might have exaggerated the role of Satan and his demons, a modern man excises these spiritual beings from his worldview altogether. And so, we have generations of people who don't believe anything they do not see. But the Bible is clear that Satan and his demons do exist. You see, the devil is an angel, or he was an angel who was created, originally created good with the rest of creation. Only God, the triune three-in-one, is uncreated, and therefore every single other being in this universe has been created by God, and it owes its existence from the power of God. Ezekiel 28, God says of Satan, you were an anointed guardian cherub, and he says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. You recall at the end of the creation week in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything God created was good in its original state. And that includes the invisible aspects of this world too, angels. Nothing evil came from God's hand. And yet, these are moral beings that he created, both Angels and humans who had the capacity to choose right from wrong, the capacity to sin. And sin is exactly what Satan did. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, gives us statements that Satan said in his pride that led to his fall. He said this, he says, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. These display the pride of Satan. He wanted to dethrone God. And that's exactly what he is of his nature. He is a usurper stepping into where he does not belong and taking what does not belong to him. And this pride is what brought about his fall. He went from being a beautiful angel to being one deformed by evil, only capable of evil. This example of Satan stands as a warning to all of us of the message of Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Satan shows up really throughout the scriptures. There's not just a few verses about him. In the Old Testament, his existence is directly attested in nine of the Old Testament books, and in, he's attested in all 27 of the New Testament books. The Bible, Bible makes it very clear of who Satan is and his servants, the demons. And he's called many things in the Bible that help us to help to reveal his character. The Bible is good about that, that names often reveal something about the person, and this, that is definitely true with Satan. He's called the serpent or the dragon. We see this in the first book, Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent is found in the garden deceiving Adam and Eve. And it's also found in the last book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 20, is called the ancient serpent. Satan, he's, he's called Satan. We see this in many places, not one place is Job chapter 1. Satan is a word that simply means adversary. He's the enemy, which is how Jesus also calls him in Matthew 13. He's called the devil in Matthew chapter 4. The devil meaning a slanderer, an accuser, or an opponent. Someone who's opposed. In Revelation chapter 9, he's called Abaddon or Apollyon, which simply means destroyer. 
This name was used by John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress that Christian met upon the way. In Ephesians chapter 6, he's called the wicked one or the evil one, describing the moral character that he has. And then he's given the title of prince or ruler. Uh, He's called the prince of demons, Luke chapter 11. He's called the the prince or ruler of this world or or the ruler of the power of the air. He's got a degree of, of dominion and sovereignty and He's even called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world, lowercase g, God of this world. This enemy has been active from the beginning, and he's held humanity within his grip. Again, under the sovereignty of God, Satan's not sovereign, God is sovereign. Satan has allowance to work in this world under God's allowance, And all of humanity is held in the grip of Satan and needs to be rescued. And so, what I want us to do with the time that we have remaining this morning is to look at the rescue mission that Jesus went about to come and rescue humanity by defeating Satan. And so, we're going to see how five different aspects of Christ's victory over Satan bring us comfort today. This reality of Satan and Jesus' victory over Satan is not a, a, something just to be thought about and discussed off on the side. This is something that we can treasure this morning and that we can rejoice even more in the coming of Jesus. And so let's look at the first aspect of Christ's victory, and that is Christ's victory prophesied. Christ's victory prophesied. After Satan's fall that I've already described in, in heaven, he shows up first in the biblical record in Genesis chapter 3. And so I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible. After Satan fell, remember he says he wanted to be like the Most High. And then what does he see? He sees that God has created man in his own image. Man who was set up to be God's representatives upon the earth. This was not true of angels. Angels were not made in the image of God, but mankind was. And so Satan begins to take his aim at God's representatives. Satan very well could have been jealous at what was given to Adam and Eve that he himself did not receive. He wasn't made in God's image. Adam and Eve was. And so he's going to attack and target Adam and Eve. Let's look first at verses 1 through 3 in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Here we see the serpent, Satan, tempt Eve by casting doubt on God's word. You notice he says, did God actually say? Are you sure that he said that? The words that were so clear in chapter 2 now are being cast in doubt here in chapter 3. And so he's tempting Eve to unbelief, to not believe the words that God has so clearly said. But he amps up his his temptation in verses 4 through 5. He says, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here, he casts doubt on God's character. He says, God is a liar. Notice, he says, you will not surely die. He directly contradicts exactly what God has said and said, that is not, what God said is not true. I will tell you what is true. He tells, him a, he tells her a lie, tempting her to rebellion against God Almighty. 
verses 6 or 7, we see that Adam and Eve took the bait. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They give in to the temptation and they sin. Verses 8 through 13, God confronts Adam and Eve, and Adam famously evades responsibility, responsibility, pointing the blame to Eve and ultimately to God for the sin. And then in verses 14 through 19, God gives the curse. He curses the serpent, Eve, and then Adam. But particularly for our purposes this morning, I want us to look at verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15, here God is cursing the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse talks of enmity between two different lines, two different offsprings, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And from this point on, the Bible tracks hostility between two groups of people, those who are on God's side, the offspring of the woman, and those who are on Satan's side, the offspring of the serpent. This will culminate into a single offspring, a single seed that will ultimately defeat Satan as the New Testament makes clear. And even the second half of this verse, right, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It narrows to an individual. But it also represents two classes of people. And this, from this verse, we see this battle that rages through the rest of Scripture in which there is hostility and enmity between God and the people of God and Satan and the people that he inspires. Most notably, it's the nation of Israel and those who are Israel's enemies throughout the Old Testament. And so as we go through the Old Testament, this, this person who would, who would crush the head of the serpent is anticipated. This is the sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first gospel, the first mention that there's going to be a deliverer who's going to come, that someone is going to come and, and free humanity from its enemy. Who is that going to be? Well, the Old Testament builds in that anticipation, and there's further clarification. It's going to come from the line of Abraham. It's going to come from the nation of Israel. It's going to come from the tribe of Judah. It's going to come from the family of David. And it continues to get narrowed and narrowed as we go through the Old Testament. This one will be a king. This one will be a priest. This one will be divine. This one will be sacrificed. And so, here we see in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that Christ's victory over Satan is prophesied. That one day this will happen. Notice that he, Satan, uh, will bruise the heel of the Messiah. There'll be a blow. There'll be some sort, of, some sort of harm that Satan can bring against this Messiah. But it's on the heel. It's not a fatal blow. But this Messiah will bruise the head of the serpent, will crush the head, will bring a fatal blow to Satan. And so, as I said, the Old Testament continues to anticipate this victory. And so, you can imagine that these two lines of, uh, of, of the battle are raging throughout human history, through thousands of years of history throughout the Old Testament. What do you think would happen when the Son of God Himself would arrive upon this earth? Well, when this Messiah would come, there would be a a significant outbreak of hostility. It's like the two armies that have been marching close to one another and all of a sudden walk out of a clearing of the wood and they can see each other and all of a sudden the battle gets hot. And that's exactly what happened. You'll remember from the Christmas story, Jesus is born. And what does Herod, the offspring of the serpent, seek to do? He seeks to kill the Messiah. I believe Satan, inspiring Herod there, seeks to kill all 
the newborn boys in Bethlehem, seeking to snuff out the one that God has sent to redeem humanity. Of course, God, in his superior power, is able to save and protect his son and sends the Holy Family to Egypt for protection. But this is just the beginning of Satan's hostility against Jesus. So, we see here first, the first aspect of Christ's victory is that it was prophesied. But now I want us to look at Christ's victory previewed. Christ's victory previewed. You see, when Jesus' ministry began, he showed that his power was superior to that of Satan's. In other words, he previewed the victory that he would accomplish at the cross throughout his ministry. The ultimate victory is going to come at the cross. But before the cross, as he is ministering, he is showing the kind of power that he has and that he has superior power to Satan. Turn to Luke chapter 4. You know, you remember that as soon as Jesus' ministry began, Satan launched an attack upon Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized, and that is the official mark of his ministry upon the earth. And he then is uh, led out into the wilderness, chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. 40 days, fasting, no food. And there he is tempted by Satan himself. Here they meet. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent are there battling it out. Will Satan tempt the Son of God? Will he succeed in derailing the Messiah's mission? In dooming all of humanity? If Jesus does not go through to the cross, if Jesus does not continue on the mission the Father gives him, then all of humanity is doomed. Can Satan accomplish that? Jesus proves victorious. Besting Satan at each turn, at each attack. Quoting scripture to turn away the devil. Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so it says in chapter 4, verse 13 of Luke, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan wasn't done. He, his mission wasn't over. He was going to continue to try all that he could. And I believe this opportune time, particularly for Satan himself, came in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was facing the cross before him. But what Jesus proved here is that he was stronger than Satan. His power was superior. And Jesus then stepped out into his ministry, displaying that power wherever he went. In fact, chapter 4, look in verse 18. As he reads from Isaiah in Nazareth, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to set spiritual captives free. He came to release them from the power of Satan. Those who are oppressed. And he then stepped out of that synagogue. And began his, his ministry throughout Galilee. Displaying that power wherever he went. Casting out demons time and time again. And the demons knew. They were, they, they were shaking in their boots. They said, oh, oh, son of God, don't cast us into the abyss. But he continued to show the people that he had the superior power. In fact, Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 11 that the reason he's able to step in and to, and to dominate these demons is because he first has bound the strong man. Jesus has uh, hindered, put Satan in handcuffs in some senses so that he is able to step into Satan's territory and to be able to dominate even Satan's servants. Jesus was truly the dominant character in this fight. And it was previewed here throughout his ministry. 
And you'll notice, remember that Jesus even appointed his apostles, his disciples, to go out and to, and to preach. But not only to preach, but also to cast out demons. In other words, as Jesus' representatives to the nation of Israel, they showed that the one that they represented truly had the superior power over the forces of darkness. Jesus even said in Luke chapter 10 that as his disciples were casting out demons, Jesus was watching Satan time again being cast out of heaven like flashes of lightning. But, you know, Satan wouldn't take this lying down. He's not going to give up just once. And so he sought to leverage the power that he had in death against the Son of God. Turn to Luke chapter 13. Sorry, John chapter 13. John 13. Here's where we come to the Last Supper. The disciples are in the upper room with Jesus. Notice what it says in verse uh, 2. Luke, or John, sorry, 13, verse 2. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper, and it goes on to describe what he did. But what I want you to see here is that Satan had already put the idea in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. The idea was there. But Satan is going to make sure that Jesus' plans are stopped. He's going to make sure that Jesus truly gets executed. And so, look at what it says in verse 27. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel of bread, that is, Satan entered into him, that is Judas. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, it says no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought maybe because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we should give some to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Satan had first put the idea into Judas and then here in the upper room, he enters Judas to inspire Judas to do what he did, to betray Jesus, to make sure that Jesus ended up on the cross. Now, we know in the grand scheme of things, God's the one who's in control. He's the one writing the story. He's the one uh, that is orchestrating all these things to bring about the cross for his ultimate salvation purposes. But Satan thinks that he is scheming. He thinks he's doing what he can do. He thinks he's going to bring about an end to the Son of God. And yet, Jesus is the one who's ultimately going to have the victory. And so this betrayal here in John 13 set in motion the events that led to Jesus' crucifixion outside Jerusalem. And so this leads us then to the third aspect of Christ's victory. We've seen Christ's victory prophesied, it previewed, and now thirdly, Christ's victory accomplished. Christ's victory accomplished. All of this battle is coming to a head. And the decisive point of victory over Satan came at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that his crucifixion would bring about the death blow to the devil, who he identifies as the ruler of the world. Look a chapter earlier in John chapter 12. 12 verse 31. It says, Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw up all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see here, Jesus is referencing his, the cross and crucifixion. He's going to be lifted up. Lifted up, which is a, a, a reference back, John chapter 3, and into uh, the history of Israel where the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness Jesus recognizes that when he is lifted up, not only is he going to bring about salvation, drawing all kinds of people to himself, but it's also through that death that there's judgment coming upon the world and that the 
the ruler of the world, that is the devil, that is Satan, will be cast out. Look at chapter 16, verse 11. Jesus says the same thing. John 16, 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus is seeing that already the ruler has been judged. Satan already has the death warrant, already has uh, the, his demise, has already been scripted. And that was going to come through what Jesus was about to do. But the verse that is just blatantly clear about what Jesus accomplished here when he came to earth and through his death, burial, and resurrection is John, 1 John 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Then he says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did the Son of God appear? Why did Jesus come? Well, one of the reasons he came is to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy him. And we get a further illustration of the destroying of these works in Hebrews chapter 2. We spent time in Hebrews chapter 2 last week. We got to return there again to this great paragraph connecting the incarnation of Jesus with the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here it's, explicitly says that Jesus, by taking on human flesh and blood, was able then to die, and through his death, he was able to deliver those who were in slavery. Who enslaved them? Who put them in bondage? It was Satan through the fear of death, he says. This is not a temporary slavery. Notice it says a lifelong slavery. This is something that all of unsaved humanity is enslaved to. I like the New American Standard Translation here, instead of saying to destroy the one who has the power of death, it says to render powerless the one who has the power of death. And I, I think that captures the essence of this word. That at the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of the devil. Satan continued to exist after the cross. He exists today. But his power was nullified. It was, he was rendered powerless for all of those who believe, all of those who are in Christ, all of those who receive the forgiveness of sins through Christ's sacrifice. Further, Paul declares in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that through the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities referencing the demonic army, the demonic horde that Follow Satan. All of them have been disarmed. They've been put to open shame. A description of, of a Roman conqueror who would come through and bring his, his, his defeated enemies with him, showing with mockery that he has defeated them. Jesus put the demonic rulers to open shame, triumphing over them. So friends, here's the point of this. We follow a victorious Savior. Jesus Christ has given the death blow to Satan at the, his death and resurrection. Again, Satan's existence wasn't wiped out, but his power was broken. He no longer has a monopoly on mankind. He's been rendered powerless by the cross. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent, to destroy the enemy, as predicted in Genesis 3.15, this was the victory of the incarnation to defeat Satan and his foes. And folks, this is the victory that each one of us needed. Without the work of Jesus, every person is captive 
to the power of Satan. The Bible is clear about this, that Satan is the ruler of this world. He's the ruler of those who are in this world and unsaved. They are under the sway of his power. 1 John 5.19 says, For the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This current world system, this current unbelieving world lies under the power of the evil one, and that includes those who do not follow Christ. Further, it says that unbelievers are simply following the lies of the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As we saw in Genesis 3, he lied directly to Eve. God did not say that. You will not surely die. Satan has been lying from the beginning, and all those who continue to remain in their sin follow his lies. They continue to live under this illusion of of life and security. Further, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that Satan, known as the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And as we already saw in Hebrews chapter 2, Satan holds all people in bondage to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. And is this not what we see around us today? Humanity in this bondage to the enemy? COVID has only brought out this reality in stark contrast. To see the fear of death that that grips humanity all over the world. This isn't a certain national problem. This is a humanity problem. And it's bondage. It's slavery. It's a controlling fear that Satan holds people in. As we look around us, in all sectors of society, in all areas, you don't have to look far to see the lies that people continue to peddle. Look at the lies that people continue to think will save them. We see this world system in the, under the power of the evil one as governments increase wrongs against people. The decisions made and the action taken against people and, and, and against Christians show that it is demonically inspired. This is not just people who don't like other people. This is a continued showing of the battle of Genesis 3.15. That Satan is against the people of God. And this battle will continue. And yet the message of Christmas, friends, is that Jesus has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He has stepped into the dark night of humanity's bondage and brought victory. Jesus came to make war with the devil and he defeated him. And so church, we cannot forget this. We do, we do not stand in a, de, in a defeated stance. We fight an enemy who's been defeated. We are united to Jesus, and therefore we stand in victory with him. Our allegiance is no longer with the usurper. Our allegiance is with the Lord. We confess Christ is king. He has set us free, and he is the victorious conqueror. And we cannot forget this. That baby in the manger came to bring about the greatest victory ever seen. And let me just say, if you're here today and you have not confessed Christ as Lord, if you do not have the assurance of eternal life with Jesus, if you have not repented of your sins, laid down your arms of fighting against God and trying to run life your own way and confess Jesus as Lord, then you still remain under the power of the evil one. He is your Lord. He is your ruler. And so I call you today to turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who can set you free from your sin, who can set you free from Satan's power. Only he has found life and victory. You cannot achieve victory in your own power, in your own will. 
You cannot set yourself free. Only Jesus can do that. Only He was the perfect Son of God who was sacrificed in your place, who took death on your behalf so that you can be set free. Turn to Him and you can find freedom and life today. So we take comfort and joy in Christ's defeat of the devil through His cross and resurrection. Fourthly, the fourth aspect this morning I want us to look at is Christ's victory applied. Christ's victory applied. As I said, Satan's been defeated, but he's still active today. He didn't go away. And so we, as the church, as followers of Christ, still battle Satan today. But how do we do that? We do it by applying Christ's victory each and every day. It's not because of things that we find within us that enables us to fight Satan. It's because of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, of Satan's plans and schemes. We can't be ignorant. We can't be outwitted by him. Ephesians 6 11, the great passage on spiritual warfare says to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to know what those schemes are. We need to know what he does, what he rails against us, because, listen, friends, Satan is continually attacking us. He wants us to be sidelined. He wants us to wind up in disobedience and dishonoring the Lord. And so we need to be aware of his devices. We need to know his tactics. Authors Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley remind us this. They say, Satan is a fool for opposing God. But he's a highly intelligent fool. His methods are many and varied and well proven over the centuries. And they quote the Puritan William Grinnell who said this. He says, no actor has so many costumes to wear upon the stage as the devil has forms of temptation. A, a powerful imagery to recognize all the different ways that Satan, as the scriptures say, presents himself as an angel of light. To see that we might be thrown aside. In fact, Satan's ultimate uh, aim is described in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where Paul says, speaking to the Corinthians, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And this, I believe, is the broad goal of Satan against the church, as he wants to lead the church away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. If he can cool the church, he can't touch us. He can't make us unsaved. He can't make us unbelievers. We are eternally with Christ, but he can cause our passion to cool. He can cause our devotion to no longer be pure, but to be mixed, to be soiled with sin. And so he has been going at it ever since the creation of the church. And so let me just give us a few ways that Satan seeks to attack believers. Many of these are drawn from Beaky and Smalley's reform systematic theology. Some of these I've added myself. But first, Satan's strategies. He, number one, Satan casts doubt upon God's word and God's character. We already saw that in Genesis chapter 3. Casting doubt upon God's word and God's character. He wants us to think that God isn't truly loving. That God is not giving us his best. That God is holding out on us. And God is not loving as he said. He's really just self-serving. He's ignoring us. That's what Satan wants us to believe. A second tactic of Satan, he promises disobedience will make us happy and that obedience will ruin our lives. This is a classic move of the enemy. He wants us to think that if you really obey the Bible and do what it says and live holy and righteous, then that's going to ruin you. That's not the right way to go. That's not going to end in happiness and joy. Rather, disobedience, that's going to what's really going to fulfill you. That's what's going to make you whole and complete if you disobey the word of the living God. Friends, we can't fall for it. We must trust God. We must trust in his word and recognize the temptation for what it is. The third tactic of Satan, he can use one sin as a beachhead in the believer's soul. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Paul is saying here that if we allow anger to continue to fester and bitterness to continue to be in our hearts, that we're giving an opportunity for the enemy to have a foothold and he establishes a headquarters by which he can continue to launch further attacks into our lives. We cannot allow sin to continue into our lives in one area. We often appease ourselves and go, well, I'm being, I'm being righteous and obeying over here, Lord, so I can have my little pet sin over here, right? Friends, don't be dismayed by that. Don't be led astray by that. The fourth tactic of Satan, he clouds our fellowship with God by igniting lusts for this world. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, we're told not to love the world or the, or the things in the world because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're tempted every day to, to pull into the allure of the world, but we're not to love that. Satan wants it to look attractive to us so that then we give our allegiance and our love and our passion and our time and our energies to the things of this world. And then we don't have the passion for the Lord. It clouds our fellowship with him. Again, he can't affect our salvation, but he can sideline us. The fifth, fifth tactic of Satan, he intimidates believers by the frightening persecutions he incites through unbelievers. There have been persecutions against the church from the very beginning. We read that in the book, book of Acts. People put to death. People imprisoned. 1 Peter 5 says that the devil prowls around like a, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he goes on, Paul, Peter goes on there to say that, that this is the kind of suffering that the Christians are experiencing throughout the world as the enemy attacks through persecution. Causing some to give up their faith causing some to renounce Christ. But again, we can't allow the threat of physical pain, the threat of persecutions to cause us to derail from our allegiance to Christ. The sixth and final tactic of Satan I'll mention for us this morning is that Satan uses our sin to burden our conscience with fear and guilt. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers. He is regularly before the throne of God accusing us of our sin and I believe through his, his enemies also tempt us with our sin. You think you're a Christian and you've done that? Who do you think you are? Do you think God really loves you because of what you've done? You are so guilty. You, you make yourself feel better but you know secretly what you've done. He accuses us and causes us to forget the gospel. That yes, we are that sinful. Yes, we are that guilty. I admit it. I'm not going to dodge it. But Christ took my sin for me. We must remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel and not allow the tactic of Satan to tempt us into believing that our guilt and fear should subdue us into ineffectiveness for Christ. So what's our defense? Well, I've mentioned some of them already. But the first and foremost of our defense is that we must rely on Christ's victory. We rely on what he's already accomplished at the cross and the resurrection. Ephesians 6, the great passage on spiritual warfare, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of whose might? The strength of his might. Friends, we fight this battle dependently. We don't step out as a great warrior that has all the strength and can conquer all of our battles. We step out dependently because we stand with the victorious Christ. In Revelation chapter 12, it tells of the martyrs in their tribulation. And it says that they conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They stood with the, by the cross of Christ and they gave testimony to that fact and they conquered Satan. We do the same thing. Stand with Christ and recognize the victory he's accomplished at the cross. But the second way we defend ourselves is by standing in God's armor. We stand in God's armor. Ephesians chapter 6, we don't have time to go through it, but he lists all these pieces of armor for us to put on individually and corporately for us to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We cannot forget all these things that are provided for us in God's word and in Christ. Again, we stand dependently. We are, it's an armor that is given to us. And the third and final exhortation that we have for standing against Satan is that we resist. 
We resist the devil. It's stated twice, James 4, verse 7, and 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. We are not commanded to speak to the devil. We are not commanded to rebuke the devil. We are commanded to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. I believe we follow Jesus' example where we speak the word of God, we remind ourselves of the promises, and we stand with truth, and the lies and the father of lies will depart from us. So friends, we can take great comfort to know that Satan has been defeated. We are fighting a winning battle. And this is one of the promises and the hope that was given to us in the coming of Christ. Finally this morning, and quickly, I just want to give you the fifth and final aspect of Christ's victory, and that is Christ's victory completed. And we don't have time to look into these passages, but simply, the book of Revelation describes Satan's ultimate final destruction. In Revelation chapter 20, he will be bound for a thousand years, and then after a thousand years is up, he will be released for one last rebellion, and then ultimately will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity to be tormented. Why did God want that written down? Because he wanted us to know that our enemy will be ultimately vanquished. That even though he has some leeway now and he is doing some work now, deceiving the nations and attacking us, we know that he will not have the final say. Deception and evil will not win the day. Evil will be vanquished once and for all. And our eternal home will be one that is free from evil and free from the enemy. And in that, we rejoice. Do we not? And so, friends, the message of Christmas is that the baby born in the manger is the great victor who defeated the forces of darkness. Certainly, we see wickedness in our world today. We see nations deceived by Satan. But we can take confidence that Jesus is Lord and he will have the final say. History is God's story and he's already written the ending. Stand with Christ and you will be with the winning side. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great confidence and hope that we have in your word that Jesus, the Son of God, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And he did that successfully. Father, we groan in our present state, recognizing that we are not in our eternal home and that we live in a world that still has Satan, the prince of the power of the air, roaming around, still working his evil purposes, deceiving the nations. And so, Father, we long for the day when you will come and you will ultimately put an end to this great enemy. And you will receive all the glory for your victory over this enemy. Father, I pray for any here who are still within the clutches of Satan. Oh God, may you break them free. May you set them free. May their eyes be opened. May no longer blinded to see Christ. May they see that salvation is only found in Jesus. And may your church, Lord, stand in the victory that Christ has accomplished. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.